0: Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of the Ministry Minded Podcast, a show that seeks to marvel at the mercy of God that meets us in our messy ministries. I'm your host, Pastor Brad Gray. I serve as the senior pastor of Stonington Baptist Church right here in Paxonis, Pennsylvania. And this little show is just an extension of my ministry to uh, this church and also the surrounding communities. Um, can you believe August is over? Oh my goodness. I can't believe that uh, whenever you're listening to this, September is party already uh, getting into gear. Uh, summer is over. School is here. School is upon us. The busyness of that time of year is, uh, now here right in front of us. (laughs) I cannot believe that this summer is already gone, that we are back into the swing of school routines and fall schedules and all the busyness that comes along with that. It's kind of hard to believe. Um, as i 've been saying for a while, August has kind of uh, kind of slapped me uh, in the face with all the stuff that was going on um, and I didn't mean that in the best possible way, <laughs> um, but i 'm really uh, thankful for all that we are able to do and accomplish this uh, this summer uh, as a church, uh, especially the things that we are able to see God do in August, uh, vacation Bible school, baptisms, revivals, all kinds of stuff going on uh, and i 'm really, really happy for uh, for what God has allowed us to do and and I'm looking forward to even in the months to come and uh, what he's going to continue doing through us as a church. Um. In light of that, just a a sort of a housekeeping note, Uh, there won't be a show next week. I'm gearing up for, I would say, a much needed vacation. (laughs) So on Sunday, uh, the 5th, after the morning service, I'll be heading out um, on vacation, going to see family. So uh, thank you for uh, your prayers for that. And I hope you'll Uh, Just keep us in prayers as we drive, and uh, just really thankful for the time that we can kind of get away and just just relax and hopefully get some rejuvenation and some rest. So, uh, looking forward to that. So, there will be tons of stuff still going on on the blog, uh, and you can check out the church social medias at Stonington uh, Baptist on a lot of places, and just uh, go uh, look at that and see what we have going on. On those, uh, there's still several events going on at the church so uh, just be checking out that and uh, but yeah make sure you're subscribed to the blog and so you don't get any, don't miss anything there. Um, really thankful for that really thankful that we can uh, continue to uh, minister to you in that way if there's anything by the way you'd like for this podcast to cover any sort of topic or, or idea that uh, or subject that you'd like me to sort of uh, talk about uh, definitely email me Pastor Brad J gray at email uh, gmail.com. Uh, and I'd be glad to sort of discuss that on an upcoming episode. Uh, t- lots of good stuff to get to today. Uh, some sermon recaps. I'm going to go over several articles just kind of briefly, and uh, just hopefully encourage you uh, on this Friday afternoon or whatever you're you're listening to this, whenever you happen to be tuning in. Uh, so it's tons of stuff to kind of go over, and we'll keep we'll, we'll keep it uh, concise. We'll keep it efficient. So, uh, but before we get there, let's uh, just hear from our sponsor You can start a new recording right from your mobile device. They also have convenient creation tools that allow you to edit your audio files so they sound crisp and great. Anchor also distributes your podcast for you, letting listeners find your show almost everywhere, including Spotify, Anchor Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and several others. And best of all, it's free. There are no hosting fees or monthly subscriptions or minimum listener counts, just an easy-to-use platform to get your podcast out there at no cost to you. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm today to get started. Do you like coffee? I know that you do, and that's why I want to tell you about Fresh Roasted Coffee. Fresh Roasted is a locally owned and operated coffee house right here in central Pennsylvania that is committed to providing the highest quality coffee on earth. They do so by sourcing only the freshest coffee beans and by using the most eco-friendly roasting technology in the world. Fresh Roasted's USDA certified organic coffee beans ensure that your coffee is consistently regulated at each stage of the production process and completely free of GMOs and harmful synthetic substances. Fresh Roasted Coffee roasts their beans per order, with immediate packaging and shipping directly to your door, meaning that you get to experience fresh coffee at its peak drinkability. That's what I like. I was introduced to Fresh Roasted Coffee soon after moving to central Pennsylvania, and I'm so happy I was, because I think it's literally the best coffee out there. Their Blackbeard's Revenge blend is out of this world good. Whether you use a regular drip coffee maker or a pour over or a French press, however you get your coffee fix, make it fresh roasted. Go to the link in the notes for this show and use the offer code GRACE10 at checkout. That's offer code GRACE10 at checkout to get a discount on your next order. Okay, uh, this past Sunday, the last Sunday in August, uh, I preached twice, Uh, really thankful for both times of worship with my church family uh, and the Sunday morning service. I was thrilled to be in First Kings 18 and also 19. Um, as you know, uh, if you've been following the blog and the podcast for a while, I've been traversing through First Kings, and we're nearing the end, at least of this first half of this study, um, with First Kings 18 and 19. We covered most of uh, First Kings 19. We'll, we'll get the end of it in, in a couple weeks here. But uh, this is sort of the story of Elijah's disillusionment. Uh, and it's often uh sort of Colored that way, it's often sort of interpreted that way, that Elijah uh, that Elijah suffers a severe bout of depression here in First Kings nineteen. He, if you recall, uh, receives that threat from Jezebel and then goes on the run, uh, so to speak, and he flees from the kingdom. And then, uh, of course, he eventually finds himself at Mount Horeb, uh, A.K.A. Mount Sinai, and that's where he receives that wonderful encapsulating vision of the of. The the Messiah, I would say, uh, just let the cat out of the bag, uh, the voice of God, the still small voice of Yahweh that speaks to him in that cave. Um, I would say 1,000%. That there's themes of depression and disappointment and disillusionment and discouragement here on display in this chapter. Um first King nineteen is is, is sort of contains a lot of that and how God speaks to people in those precise situations. I would say I think that um after spending a week with that particular passage that the notes of depression uh, have sort of been overdone, if I could say that. Um in this passage, not to say that Elijah isn't depressed, but I think he's depressed for a reason that we often don't think about. Often I think it's tailored and the the text is sort of jockeyed and positioned, so to speak, in in terms of Elijah being depressed in and of himself because of his failure. I think it's actually because of Israel's abandonment of Yahweh, even after the demonstrable sign that Yahweh is the God, as Israel confesses in 1 Kings 18.39, um, even after that incredible confession, um, it's the note that Jezebel hasn't uh, received sort of the same enlightenment, you could say, and she's still pressing forward in this resistance towards Yahweh. And I would say Israel at large has not made that same confession. So, I think the disillusionment comes from this standpoint that the kingdom of God's people, his people of promise, are still trudging headlong into rebellion and rejection of their one true God. And that's sort of what breaks him. Um, in verse 3, it says, when he saw that, that means when Elijah sees the sort of continued uh, sort of uh, headstrong and stubborn rebellion on display by Jezebel and all of Israel, uh, that's when he runs. He runs for his life. He flees. He departs. He confesses that he's had enough of, the, of this people. Uh, seemingly, he's kind of given up hope on Israel in this sort of moment that he's sort of the one that hasn't been able to turn them around. Um, and I think that's when God gives him a vision of of just how his renewal is going to come about. Um, it is precisely through this still small voice. Now, there's so many parallels. I have an essay coming out in the weeks to come on this particular passage. I hope you'll be looking out for that. But just to sort of give you a preview of that, uh, Christ is everywhere in this passage. Uh, and I mean that in all senses of the term, Christ is here. He shows up as the angel that tends to him in chapter 19, verse 7. He shows up as the still small voice that appears as Yahweh's visible form of the voice. And uh, very clearly, I think there's Christophanies happening all over this passage. Uh, I was very much helped by my friend from 1517, Chad Bird, in this regard. Um, his comment- uh <laughs> Commentary. His sort of helps in this regard that come through his book, The Christ Key, were almost invaluable uh, to this particular. Um, Study, especially chapter two of that book where he discusses Malach Yahweh, the angel of the Lord that appears throughout the Old Testament. And here, very clearly, that's who's showing up. Uh, And I think I just could not escape this. So uh, listen to the sermon. Uh, Hopefully, what comes through is exactly what I, I, I meant to come through. But I just could not escape the parallels in this particular chapter. You have Elijah in Horeb, a.k.a. the mountainous region of Sinai, uh, being given a vision of the Lord and his glory passing by. And then there's this awesome declaration of grace and truth. Now, think about Exodus chapter 33 through 34. You have Moses in Sinai, a.k.a. Horeb, seeing the Lord's glory pass by, and then here's a declaration of grace and truth. And then think about even further than that, just even more of those parallels, we get the full embodiment of God's grace and truth in the person of Jesus Christ, who is Yahweh in the flesh. And we see this transfigured form of Yahweh in the flesh on, of course, the Mount of Transfiguration. And guess who shows up at that particular moment? Yes, (laughs) Elijah and Moses. There's there's just so much meaning and there's so much weight that is added to this moment when you understand that this glory of the Lord that comes is the fulfillment of it all. It's the Son of God in bodily visible form. He's the voice of Yahweh who has come to do the ministry of Yahweh and come to be the person of Yahweh in flesh and blood, meant to be our gentle and lowly Savior. He's the savior of the world, the express image of the invisible God, as it says in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, the brightness of Yahweh's glory. There's just an incandescent beam of light and hope and grace in this passage that God's work of grace and truth is not done with Elijah. Elijah. Even though uh, Israel had yes pressed even further into the rebellion, God wasn't done working His working His will in His people, working His will in this world. His authority was the authority that was at work. Yes, even when Elijah couldn't necessarily see it. That's a hope for me. That's a hope for all the world. That God's work is always being done. It's always being carried forward. Even when we can't see it, even when we can't hear it necessarily, his work continues as the work of the gentle and lowly incarnate Word of God. I'm thankful for this passage. I was really excited to preach the Mount Carmel passage, to the bulk of chapter 18, but I found even perhaps more affecting this chapter, chapter 19, in the fact that, yes, Elijah is dealing with disillusionment, but yes he's, uh, he, yes, he's dealing with brokenness, he's dealing with a heavy burden, but who shows up to relieve him and minister to him in that burdened and broken state? It's none other than Christ the Lord, the King of kings, I'm grateful for that. Go listen to that sermon. I hope you'll be blessed. In the Sunday evening worship time, I delivered a sermon from Genesis 3. Uh, I've taken a slight break, a slight pause in our series through the book of Philippians, which we won't actually get to till later in September because of other events going on at the church. But I wanted to deliver the sermon on uh, precisely the notion of the fall and how it's often different than what we uh, think about it. It, the fall uh, is an upward fall. It's an upward rebellion into the region of the divine. It's, as I termed it, celestial inter- insurrection, <laughs> which is a very important way to think about the fall. It, uh, I was thinking about this especially in terms of Gerhard Forty's uh, sort of commentary on this particular passage. He writes this, quote, Adam and Eve fell into sin. The fall is not really what the word implies at all, though. It is not a downward plunge to some lower level in the great chain of being, some lower rung on the ladder of morality and freedom. Rather, it is an upward rebellion, an invasion of the realm of things above, the usurping of divine prerogative. To retain traditional language, then, one would have to resort to an oxymoron and speak of an upward fall, End quote. I think that this gets at the heart of what's happening in Genesis 3. Mankind has chosen to put himself in the place where only God belongs. And this then brings to light the hope and the glory and just the incomprehensibility of the gospel. Whereas, where man puts himself in the place of God and results in sin, God puts himself in the place of man and it results in salvation. That's the hope of the gospel. It's the gospel of substitution. It's the gospel that's declared to us in that very verse, Genesis 3.15, where we're promised that the seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent. I hope you'll listen to that sermon. It's a great, I hope, study and examination of that particular passage, bringing to bear the cosmic results of sin, if you will, but also the very incredible uh, notion of the gospel, which tells us that, yes, God makes himself like man in order to make men and women his dear children. Uh, Very thankful for that study. Hopefully, you'll be encouraged by that particular uh, sermon as well. Moving on, a couple of weeks ago, I wrote an article called Grace for the Present. Uh, It was sort of just a reflection on the fact that God's grace allows us to be present. It allows us to be really sort of in the moment, if you will. And uh, I'm very thankful for that truth. And I was thinking uh, just recently because um, Oliver Berkman, he r- r- has this newsletter that he writes called The Imperfectionist, which if you haven't subscribed to it, I, I do recommend it. It's, uh, it's a r- very good little newsletter that comes uh, f- quite frequently, and he writes on a lot of different matters, sometimes productivity, sometimes just our, our work lives and how we situate uh, where we are in our lives. But I, I, on one of his recent editions of the newsletter, he sort of uh writes on a very similar theme to what I was trying to get at in that article grace for the present uh Berkman's newsletter uh, this edition at least it is is entitled on not minding what happens and he writes quote, living more fully in the present may simply be a matter of finally realizing that you had never that you never had any option but to be here now end quote and I think That may sound like an esoteric statement, but I think it's not. I think what he's getting at is precisely what I was hoping to get at as well in my article, which is simply this, that uh, the grace for the present means surrendering our control over the future. I think oftentimes we want to sort of uh, take ourselves out of the present because we want to predict the future and control it. We want to hopefully make it what we want it to be and Oftentimes, we have to realize, not even oftentimes, all the time, we have to realize that we don't have a lot of control over our own lives, that our lives are entrusted to the sovereign authority of another, precisely the God of all things, the God of all grace, the God of sovereign authority, and living in the present is sort of surrendering that control and that's hard to do. Uh, we we don't like surrendering control, and, and yet that's the gift of grace. It surprises us with the notion that the one thing that truly makes us free is the one thing that's hardest to do, surrendering control over our little lives. Go read that little newsletter by Berkman. It's it's really quite profound, I think, and uh, hopefully it'll give you some encouragement on th- on this afternoon, this weekend, and in the weeks to come as well. Okay. <laughs> Uh, I want to highlight some other things um, just quickly, not uh, quoting from them in, at any length or anything like that, um, but uh, I wrote a piece for Mockingbird recently, uh, so I'm so grateful to be a contributor to Mockingbird Ministries. It's sort of the brainchild of David Zoll and several others, and uh, I wrote a piece for, uh, on there called I'm Not Who I Want to Be, and in, in which I sort of confess some of the things that social media does. Does to us, and I think it's really interesting to think about how social media changes us. Which is, I think, true. But I think, to an even greater extent, social media not just changes us. I think it reveals us. I think it exposes us, and, and shows what's on the inside. <laughs> I think social media is so adept at showing what really lies at the heart of of the matter, at the, at what's inside our hearts. Actually, I think even more than how social media transforms the way we think and the way we operate and the, thing, and the things that we often uh, think, I think what social media does is reveal that what's on the inside of us is actually just darkness all the way through. It's sort of getting at what Jesus talks about in Mark chapter 7 where, um, you know, sin is not something that comes from the outside. It actually comes from the heart, and all of these things are buried there. Um, so go read that piece. I think it's, I think it's pretty good. Uh, I was really happy to see it published over on Mockingbird, and uh, I'm really thankful for the help of Todd Brewer, who helped me edit it, and uh, I'm really thankful for the way it turned out. And I think it's very true that social media is a revealing agent, not just a, a sort of transforming agent. And I'm thankful, though, for God's grace, even though uh, what's revealed is oftentimes a little, bit more, uh, a little bit more messy than what we perhaps would like. Another article I want to highlight is an article entitled "The Pastoral Heart of Bunyan." Uh, This article uh, was written by a local brother pastor here in Central Pennsylvania, Jake Tanner. Uh, He wrote it for Reformation Twenty One, the Reformation Twenty One blog, that is, and he basically just surveys the pastoral ministry and and thrust and heart, so to speak, of John Bunyan. Now, you might know John Bunyan, uh, especially because of uh, his very famous work, um, The the Pilgrim's Progress. So, uh, if you're familiar with that, you'll probably be very uh, intrigued by this article precisely because Bunyan was a very uh, sort of devotional pastor, one who uh, wrote about grace and the need for grace in all of one's life. And so, Really digest this article. It'll introduce you to a lot of the, the sort of wording in the, in the ministerial Uh, Sort of heart that that Bunyan possessed and displayed through throughout his ministry, and I think you'll be very much graced by it. I think you'll very be much blessed by it. So go go read that. I highly highly recommend you read it. It's it's really really good introduction to um into the heart of John Bunyan in his pastoral ministry. So uh, lastly, what I wanted to highlight is um, this other little blog. So as as you may be aware, I um. This past year, I switched over to Substack and just made my blogging home here, and we write newsletters, and I write little blogs and notes and all that sort of things here, and I've been greatly encouraged by a lot of the other little newsletters I've been able to find and start following. One of them, which I even if you're not a pastor, but especially if you're a pastor, I highly recommend that you follow this one. It's entitled Great Heart's Table. It's uh, sort of an occasional newsletter by a pastor named Randall R. Greenwald, and he writes these very practical, very encouraging, very devotional newsletters that uh, steep in deeply pastoral notes um, and get at the heart of, I think, of what pastors need. Um, And I I just can't be more thrilled to share this newsletter with you because it's so timely. All all the time, uh, Randall has a great adeptness at writing at something, I think, that what we need and what we need to hear. His latest entry is entitled "Smells (laughs) Smells Like Groupie Spirit. And it's about the pastoral tendency and pressure, I would say, to have a, quote, take on everything. You see this nowadays. There's so many things that are going on in the news. There's so many headlines that are, that are making headlines. There's so many stories that are popping up and, and, and vying for our attention, vying for our sort of, uh, solutions and answers and, and dialogue. And I, there's this pressure sometimes as, as pastors who are, for all intents and purposes, religious heads of different assemblies and congregations and and maybe this is just an, an an implicit uh sort of feeling i don't know if it's explicit or not but sometimes pastors are resorted to and and, and gone to uh for insight on how to approach the situation whether it be vaccines or masks or politics or, or scandals or wars or, or other things, pastors are, are resorted to to sort of give spiritual insight and wisdom on how to handle these situations. And we have this pressure then, this tendency to give immediate positions on things that are happening in the present. And I think that's a hard thing to do oftentimes. I think it's a hard thing to to sort of put into logical, scriptural uh, sort of wording, uh, things that are happening in the now. Um, this is what Randall writes, and I think it's so true. He writes, quote, The pressure to have a position can be intense. Gifted leaders can help us make a judgment. The insight of someone like John Piper can help us sort through the relevant questions. This is the way things are supposed to be. But to assume or reject a position just because it is Piper's is not. When we find that we are accepting what Al, Beth, or Tim says just because they are the ones saying it, we've fallen for groupy spirit. Sometimes the wisest path for us to have is the courage to simply say, I really don't know end quote, and I find this sort of um paradoxical, but I think it's so freeing. This courage and grace, I would say, to say, I don't know. how do we make sense of all the things that are going on in the world? There's a way we can say it which sounds callous, there's a way which we can say which sounds profound, but I think the way which sounds most biblical is, I don't know how to make sense of all these things." but I do know the one who holds them in his hand. I do know the one who is able to know the ends from the beginnings and I'm trusting my spirit, I'm trusting my life, I'm trusting my soul to that one, the Alpha and the Omega. That's, I would say, the freedom of saying I don't know is is the faith uh, to, uh, to hope and believe in the Alpha and the Omega, the one who knows the ends from the beginnings. Pastors, should especially feel the freedom to, to in the grace, to develop a knowledgeable understanding of the matters that are most pressing to us precisely because they aren't the ones who need to know it all and be it all for all things and all people at all times. Sometimes I think the pastor can feel as though he has to be the Holy Spirit. <laughs> he has to give the most profound answer to all of life's problems Sometimes that's harder said, or I should say that's easier said than done. Pastors and church members, don't always feel like you have to have a take on everything. Sometimes just sit and pray. Just sit in the the agony of the moment, in the tension of the mystery of faith, knowing that, yes, sometimes quick answers aren't always the wisest or the most biblical. (laughs) I was just thinking about this, uh, thinking about going back to the sermon I preached on on Sunday, 1 Kings chapter 18 and 19. At the end of chapter 18, there's this really interesting segment. Remember, uh, at the beginning of chapter 18, God has said that he's going to bring rain back into Israel. They're going through a three-year drought and famine in the land. And then, after Elijah's amazing miracle at the hand at his hands, but it's really the power of God that is working through him that brings the fire that consumes the altar um uh, in front of the very faces of the prophets of Baal and King Ahab, he prophesies to Ahab that yes, this God is bringing back rain, so he tells Ahab in verse forty one go up onto the mountain, celebrate the Lord's provision, rain is coming, rain is on the horizon then Elijah does something curious, even after prophesying, he petitions to God in verse 42 to bring the rain that he has promised to bring. He's petitioning God to bring the promise that God has already made, and petitioning God to bring about the the very thing that he has just prophesied about. There's this very interesting notion there, that he's pleading with God for the mercy to bring about what God's God's word has already said. All of which to say, He's begging God to be merciful in bringing this rain at this particular juncture. And so he sends his servant, in verse 43, to go up onto the mountaintop to give a report of the sign of rain. Seven times he goes up and sees nothing. No sign of rain. No clouds on the horizons. I imagine a clear sky. And then on the seventh time, his servant comes back and reports just the wisp of a cloud. And Elijah knows that God is on the move. That wisp of a cloud quickly turns into a thunderhead. And as it says in 1 Kings 18.45, the clouds and the sky turns black with a great rain. That wisp of a cloud, which is described as the size of a man's hand, turns into a thunderhead. But I think it's interesting to note that as Elijah has prophesied that rain is coming... He is made to wait. Made to wait seven times. Seven treks up the mountain for his servant before that rain comes. I've often wondered, and I often questioned as I was studying that passage this past week, why God made him wait? Why did God not bring the rain instantly? I think it's because things happen according to his timetable and not our own. Things happen according to his sovereign authority and not ours. I think we can be freed, then, to not always have a position, not always have our answer for things that are happening. Sometimes we can just sit and wait for God to work. And we can know that even if we can't see it, even if we can't hear it, Aslan is on the move, as C.S. Lewis would say. Jesus is working. The Spirit of God is moving in our midst. I hope you've been encouraged by today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. It's been a blessing to speak to you again, and I hope you have a great weekend and a great week next week. Again, no episode of the podcast next week. We'll return the week after, and we'll have lots to say and discuss, I'm sure. Uh, But until then, Thanks for the notes of encouragement, the comments, the subscriptions. Thank you for listening. Uh, if you haven't already, subscribe to this podcast on ministry or uh, subscribe to this podcast, ministry minded, wherever you get your podcast, Apple, Spotify, all those, all those uh, resources you can find and be sure to look at the notes. There's lots of resources this week, uh, but thank you as always. I hope you have a great, uh, a great week, great weekend and may God bless you. Amen.